welcome back to another episode of the Art versus Commerce podcast. This week is actually uh, a very good friend of mine, probably the first time I've really had um, a close friend on, uh, Craig Ormiston. He's from uh, Denver, and it's it's interesting. It's um, I've worked with him. He's he's produced for me in the past, and so our relationship was born out of being on set together. You know, it's funny because I wouldn't say that he is, he's certainly not only a filmmaker. Um, he's one of the people in my life that are involved in so many things that I, f- I just find it consistently very interesting to pick his brain because he is, he's an entrepreneur. He is, he understands tech very well. He all, he understands filmmaking very well. He's a businessman. And that, you know, it's, it's a different kind of conversation that we have on this because I think it's trying to understand. He went to USC film school and he wanted to be a, a filmmaker, a director. And it's, I think what's interesting is in seeing as the years go on and how he has left that main dream, if you will, behind. In reality, he's picked up so many more attributes and so many more different lanes that he is, is enjoying going down, that the conversation is not as pointed as others that I've done because for others, you know, it, it's a bit easier to discuss one as- the one thing that they do wholeheartedly, either it being directing or cinematography or whatever. For him, it's kind of trying to understand how can you, if you have all these interests and you sincerely want to pursue them, how can you be eclectic successfully? And so the conversation took on some really interesting trends, I think, in, in, in listening back to it and going over it before posting it. It's been it's been interesting getting to know a good friend better. Um, obviously, like I said, we met on set. We talk about the project that we did. Uh, we mentioned my, um, my, my business partner, creative partner, Justin Hamilton. He comes up. He actually, Justin uh, introduced me to Craig. Um, they were friends at USC Film School, um, just so that you have that backstory so that it makes a bit more sense when you hear it. But, you know, overall... That's what's interesting. He he he's now involved as a consultant in so many different companies. Uh, I think it's hard to keep track. It's some, I think it's like fourteen concurrently uh, in one way or another. And so that's a really that's unlike anybody that I've spoken to on the podcast. It's unlike a lot of people that I know professionally. And so his his background is really that focus and how we how he has gotten to this place and the things that he's learned over time for how that can transpire. So in that sense, it's really more about the chronology of his career so far and how as long as he keeps his interests open and pursues them, like what that can do potentially for you if you're willing to roll with the punches, as it were. You know, just something to keep in mind while listening to, to, to this episode. So yeah, without, without further ado, uh, the episode with the one and only Craig Ormiston. I can tell you what I love to do. That's an easier way to start. I love creating experiences for people of any different dimension. So whether that's throwing a party or creating an entertainment experience and it's gotten, it's transitioned into software experiences, things that you do passively or, you know, regularly on a day to day. I believe that those like micro interactions add up to something greater. So that's like a really important point. So all of that's really fascinating to me in general. And I, it's kind of sacrificial in a way. Like I, put myself in a you know physically compromised situation drinking or whatever to do something fun and really entertaining a big group but I like ringleading that and feeling responsible for getting a lot of people in a room together to have a good time I learned that a long time ago and it kind of it manifested at first in like this mentality of a career like 
oh, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I want to be a film director. And I didn't know why back then. How, when you were, how old were you when you were thinking that? Uh, 14, 15, like high school. I got my first camera. It was like a Canon GL2, just basic standard definition stuff. But a good friend of ours, Andrew Smith, his dad like had one and I was obsessed. And You were like a total film nerd. Well, I was actually, so my background, my probably prominent passions back then were more video games. I was actually designing video game maps and levels at the same time. And again, creating like at 14 earlier than that. I was like middle school. I was working with the unreal engine back then. And you know, I was a star Wars nerd or whatever. My dad got me into a lot of that stuff. And there's, you have a lot of friends that you were doing this with, or was this like an isolated thing for yourself? That was isolated. So part of the reason why I got into film, what I told people, the reasons why I told people I got into filmmaking is that I needed to get out of my bedroom see sunshine and meet women and like hang out with people. <laughs> um, how, at what age did you make that transition from like doing video games yourself to that? It's probably like eighth grade going into ninth grade. I was when like, like socializing started to become something that you yeah, felt. It mattered. And yeah. it, the funny thing is in eighth grade, it certainly matters. Yeah, it was, well, it was huge. I, yeah. I had a unique situation. It's probably not even like relevant going into, but like we transferred. It's funny thing is my parents lived, they're still, still live in the same house I was born in. So I have a lot of like, anchoring in my life and grounding in my life and still this day so it's a big part of my life i'm still friends with people i've known since kindergarten since the day i was born you know um good friends and i visit a lot of them when i'm here like my my past i'm in touch with my past more so than a lot of other people because it's actually accessible it's pretty straightforward um and that's super helpful uh, between in middle school i transferred from seventh to eighth grade um a new high school opened up and i, ha- I was forced to go to this new new rezoned kind of high school Mm -hmm. um and basically only 25 of my friends like went over you know i went from going like was kind of a popular kid in seventh grade had a you managed to do that even while making games i've I've always been that nerd who just didn't care it's always worked for me (laughs) i can be a spreadsheet nerd or whatever today i can like nerd out on dumb things and i've always like tried to make it cool and i ended up meeting people in freshman year high school who you know, we're into DDR and crazy video games and stuff like that. And yet we're like really, you know, attractive people and incredible people. And I just got lucky. I got lucky connecting with those kinds of people in my life where they just didn't matter. That's an interesting line to straddle. People have a hard time doing it as adults. You were managing to do it at 14. I was lucky. And I, again, I was always that person. I was never like the most attractive male. I wasn't an athlete. I didn't, I had to like make it interesting and I didn't want to settle. Your, your way of assessing either yourself or like decisions is just fantastic. Brutal, brutal honesty up and down the board. So I guess I, yeah, it's, it's so funny. It's a lot of the other episodes, it's an easier line of questioning because it's based on one thing. But when I think about you, like that's so many, like how many, how many company emails are you a part of right now? Uh, I'm, I probably have 14 different email addresses that are active in Google just like Google email address. That's absurd. I have to toggle between. You understand like that that's really unique, right? Or does that feel normal for you? Um, No, it's definitely unique. I think again, where we came from an industrial society where you were loyal to one job, to one company, to one identity, to one brand. Um, And we're in a generation now where that doesn't make a lot of sense. And right now it's still diverged. You're still either a company man or a freelancer. And there's really nothing in between. There's not a lot of opportunities in between. And I refuse to believe that if you look at Europe and all these other things, people are working 20%. You can choose like, I'm going to work 60% time. And that's like the concept. You can choose variety. You can choose, you know, a certain time boxing and bandwidth of labor and kind of distribute it around. And I think that's a really interesting and healthy concept. 
Um, I've never been a guy to focus. It's actually something I'll constantly struggle with in my life. I just love too many different things. And that's, as you pointed out, it's, it's going to be a challenge to get things done in that kind of context. Yeah. I'm working on that. It's a willpower and a discipline thing to try and dissect all of my projects, decide what the priorities are. And then, well, let's, let's try and see how you got here because so then, so then you start to get into filmmaking yeah. as, as a way of, I mean, obviously the storytelling was happening in the video games and then it's storytelling happening in filmmaking, but filmmaking brought a more social aspect, which matters to a kid in high school. Yeah. And so you then, I mean, you go to USC film school and what were you, do you remember what your goals were going in and what they were coming out? Yeah, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to see the world and do all these other things. And I wanted Doctor to, and astronaut. I just asked you why you went to USC film school. That's what I'm saying. And I, I wanted to live in all these worlds. I never wanted to pick. And I was intellectual enough involved. I was a good student. I cared about all these things. I got fascinated in all these subjects. And I never wanted to pick. And film always seemed like this way where I could transport myself into these worlds and study things that otherwise wouldn't be relevant to like, oh, if I was an accountant or if I... You know, I was interested in a lot of things. I was interested in architecture and whatever. And I just could again, I couldn't pick. And that's, I'm saying that's a part of my identity now. And I have to accept it, live with it, and like make it work for me and to my advantage. But uh, film enabled me to live in a lot of different worlds. And that's really the bottom line for it. It's interesting even looking back and like moving on from the industry. And we'll get to that, I, I bet. But uh, it was liberating. And I, the funny thing is, so going back to the start of filmmaking, it was a really silly thing. But there's a small probably community of filmmakers that were born out of uh, the force.net fan film forums and it's fascinating how many people i run into are like oh yeah i saw this guy's tutorials on like teaching how to make lightsabers and stuff and participating in this community at the time And this is before it wasn't quite before the prequels it was mid prequel time period but everybody was like trying to make better movies than the prequels and they had the tools they finally had the tools to do it so that was the community that i started kind of transitioned from video games into filmmaking it does um, seem like a natural transition. Yeah, it does. And I, I mean, you're still... So the funny thing is that I wanted to give myself a lightsaber. I wasn't going to do that in real life. The fantasy of like having a lightsaber in real life wasn't going to happen. But the fir- literally the first thing I ever shot, I busted open the GL2. It was like January. I can't even remember what year. 2004. Busted open the GL2, set it up on sticks, and then spun a stick around. And I rotoscoped the lightsaber on it. I actually learned how to rotoscope a lightsaber before I even knew how to make an edit. And back then I was loyal to the Adobe suite. I still am, and it's funny that Premiere's kind of coming around, and that's kind of a pride point for me because I've been only ever using Premiere and <laughs> fought Final Cut to the T. But um, yeah, before I knew how to make a picture edit, I knew how to do visual effects, and that actually kind of was a foundational basis for going into college and some of the projects that I chose to do in high school, and then some of the projects that I think built me a rep- reputation amongst my peers yeah. in college. I mean, what was the like when you? When you back to the original question, when you were going into college, was there a distinct vision that you had, and how did that vision change by the time you were out? Yeah, because I mean, something I, must have happened. Because I, you're not on what I would imagine the path you had envisioned at first. So I set out. I actually. So this is interesting. I went to USC summer seminar. So probably I'm trying to remember which year it was. One of the summers of high school, I actually went out to USC for three months. And took film film class, like a three credit film class on campus. I lived on the campus, lived in the dorm, so I got a pretty good idea of what that world would be like if I had done that. And I didn't like it. Like it was more school. It was interesting. Like I learned a lot. I met cool people, but I never. I didn't fall in love with the city then. I was never interested in the city. I was never interested in the town. And as a little like kid growing up, when independent film had a panache about it. I was fighting that war. I didn't want to be Hollywood. I wanted to go independent. But at the same time, I was pragmatic enough to realize that, like, you need to to succeed in this, any industry, you need to, 
you know, punch above your weight class and learn from the best. And that means, you know, you got to study from within the belly of the whale, you know, and again, we talked about New York and, you know, interested in living here. I've always wanted to live here. I would have rather gone to NYU. I would have rather like live this lifestyle, this college scene. Um, but deep down I knew like if I didn't, if I didn't go to Hollywood and didn't study it, study under people who live there, work there, breathe it, you know, who knows what have happened, but I, no, I get it. Slow you wanted track. to go to the best place for it. Just so that you, yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand. And it made sense for college. Now <clears> I probably <throat> wouldn't make that kind of choice. Like I probably would, I've, and I have chosen lifestyle over, you know, that kind of career panache. And I'm not saying it's the right choice. It's been a healthier choice for me, but not necessarily the smart choice. When you graduated, yeah. what was the mindset at that point with like, where did you think, what, what, what would your assessment of those four years have been and how that affected like where you wanted to go after? I still wanted to make films and I, I learned in my curriculum. So the funny thing, you, you get in your first day of film school and the first your orientation, like professor sits down with all 50 of you and they're like, okay, I want to see, a, you know, raise everybody's hands. Who wants to be a director? And all but like two people raise their hands. If that same session happened at the end and you get everybody in a room together and have, say at the end of film school, after four years of school, Hey, everybody raise your hands. How many people want to be a director? I bet two people would raise their hands because you go through that experience and part of it is conditioning. They want you to be pragmatic and say, okay, well, realistically, you're not going to be a director, but you're also probably going to fall you know, in love with another part of the process. You're going to realize your talents elsewhere, whatever. And I was definitely one of, it was probably, it was just social conditioning. Nobody wanted to produce. Nobody wanted to, you know, wrangle everybody. Nobody was really organized enough and everybody wanted to be a director and I didn't want it as badly as some of my peers. I realized that in college, like some people were going to kill other people for it. And I just didn't care. I wanted to help stories get told. It didn't really matter. And that's what a producer does at the end of the you day. You like facilitating. They, I am a facilitator. Yeah. And again, it goes back to this whole thing of creating experiences for people. I love creating the sandbox in which creative people to, can get together and succeed. Um, and so that's a huge through line in my entire life is that, you know, getting creative people together, getting just interesting people together and seeing what happens. And that's where I get, you know, my jollies is that beautiful things can happen. You know, mm -hmm. friend, friends can hook up at a party and, you know, get married or, <laughs> or, or whatever. That's one example. <laughs> um, so, so then, so then where'd you end up? What was like the first thing out? The first thing out, I actually built, and I've always been a teacher's pet. My, one of my professors ended up hiring me to do something under Alloy Entertainment, which, you know, at the time was still with Warner Brothers and things like that. And this was before Alloy TV got acquired. But they do Gossip Girl and Vampire Diaries and all these other things. So they had this, this girly niche. Um, you did? What? Or no, they did. They did. Okay. Alloy Entertainment. Gotcha. That was their brand. Their brand is like teen. They started in teenage magazines. I thought you were claiming you had a girly niche and I was just... I don't. The funny <laughs> thing is that the company, if you look at the companies I've worked for, I've never targeted my demographic. Hmm. I've never, it's not, it's not happened. Hmm. The companies I've always raised, it's like I went from teenage girls to like middle-aged women and then moved on to like, you know, kind of older echelons people. And now I, I guess I, the applications I'm building now probably target our, our, uh, our demographic, but it's been fascinating. So yeah, I started in teenage girls. Uh, Trip Reed was the professor I had at USC and he was actually even just adjunct. He was taken over for another director in a directing class. But yeah, we hit it off. We had a good time. I was a good student. I worked really hard. And what were you doing at the... At this job. Originally, he, I guess he hired me as his assistant, but it took a week and a half for me to really be bad at being an assistant and also realizing that there was other things that really just needed to get done if we were going to do this thing correctly. Trip was asked by Al Entertainment to start producing web series and to figure out what the internet meant for their company. And that was the open-ended assignment. And it was all branded content at the time. So they had partnership deals with Kmart and uh, Procter and & Gamble. Um, 
Macy's, bunch of brands mm-hmm. lined up. And basically the objective was to create original narrative content. What they wanted to do, their model originally was to produce hour long or an hour's worth of content for each brand um, and break it up into five to 10 minute episodes, right? So theoretically, you could string together a TV pilot. And if you wanted to go to broadcast with it off of the web series, you could. That was the original format. So it was an interesting premise. Um, How long were you there? uh, About a year and a half, a little over a year and a half. And we produced about six programs. So probably $15 million in budgets that I was exposed to. Basically, and what, how close were you in terms of orchestrating what happened with that money and getting a real feel for dealing with that kind of expenditure? I was very close to it. I wasn't the line producer. We hired a guy named Corey Bud to kind of take over like physical production, mm-hmm. and I ended up owning the post side. I would say like, my strength in you know the the process. I'm I'm a huge heart for post. Love editing. The final mix is my favorite part of the storytelling process. Like without question, just sitting in that room and. Yeah. you know, tying it all up. Did, with the did this start to help you realize that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, and cool. again, I, I was trusted explicitly by the executives and everybody else, even the directors of these projects to participate in that process. And, and again, I, it's interesting with the film process. I don't like the idea of pulling crews together and then watching them disperse. And again, in the business, the only way you're really successful is if you have a loyal team and you work together all the time. That's, and there's ways around that obviously, but no, no successful film is tribal. Yeah, for sure. very tribal. And um, it was hard for me to like watch these crews just disband after two weeks of work or whatever. It's emotionally just hard. You invest yeah. so much in these relationships. So post is a way to mitigate that a lot. You're sitting there for six hours or six you know weeks or whatever in a post cycle and you're going in with editing booths and it's a little bit more intimate and you're mm. building these relationships. You're having lunch with it every day and you are going at your own speed even though the schedule is pretty crazy. Um, it's just healthier and there's it's interesting. So that was like the dawn of me deciding that I wanted to build more longer lasting like collaborative work environments. If that makes any sense. So, so this, this first job out of college really helped you see that. Yeah, absolutely. Where did that lead? What, what was up next? Um, up next, I ended up moving back to Denver. So I announced that I was parting with Owl Entertainment. Um, Born and raised in Denver, just for the record. Correct. Um, Denver. So you asked me an important question earlier of like what I, what I was setting out to achieve in college. And I can give you the explicit answer of that is that I wanted to be a film director and I wanted to make Denver a film community establish it as an interesting just like any other city like uh you know or new mexico all of these other places get incentives participate in it new orleans i've I've gotten pretty far in the interview process to be the head of the film commission in denver um i remember that yeah so it's it's been a part of my life it's been something i've i'm a huge denver and colorado loyalist but when you look at the ingredients and i've become mature over the last couple years you look at the ingredients and what it takes to actually establish an industry um Denver just doesn't have it right now. There's not a single stake. All the sound stages have been torn down or retired or converted to something else. It's gone. And probably it was, into a craft brewery. If I had probably, to guess. Uh, actually, one uh, one's a craft winery. Yeah. Okay. The, yeah. Even, like even urban winery. Yeah. It's, it's pretty funny. Um, okay. But before we get too off track, where did you go next? I went to work for a startup in Denver called Craftsy. Craftsy at first was setting out to change the way education works. Right. They wanted. There's a lot of companies in the market right now that are producing video and yeah. selling classes online a la carte. And that was their model. They had an interesting piece of technology that I found still really engaging. If you're familiar with like SoundCloud's commenting system, this yep. idea of like time code, time stamping yeah. comments. Yeah. Um, and so this is education, right? So each each course was taught by a prof- or an instructor and they had a commercial or they had a con- contractual obligation 
to respond to comments against their videos within 24 hours. So you effectively had a teacher-student relationship at a very big scale. And so, yeah, you, you're like, oh, I don't know. I don't really understand this. I have a question at this point in the video. Help me, teacher. And they had to respond and participate. So when you were paying $35 for a class instead of $1,500 for a class, right. that was the model. And the technology was there. And it was not that sophisticated, but it became a really... What were you doing for them? So I was originally asked to help them grow production, just in general. They, they needed, well, again, the title is like post-production supervisor, but pretty quickly you get into an environment where it's 12 people and you just win a series A round in startup capital and you need to like grow. You just, again, It's a many ride. hats situation. Yeah, you. Um, I've, I've only ever worn so many hats. And again, the definition of a producer is to do anything you've got to do to get the job done in that particular environment. Even when was, you're getting hired in terms of post-producing, it just straddles into actual production and prep and all things. Absolutely. I mean, you have you have to have a relationship with production. You have to have a relationship yeah. with prep and the script and everything. You have to be involved. The best processes, you know, aren't completely waterfall. It's not like A to B to C to no, whatever. Definitely. Everybody's already integrated, and the best directors and filmmakers and producers appreciate that and yeah. make sure everybody's in the room when it counts. Definitely. How long were you there? I was there for probably another year and a half. There's a trend here. Another year and a half. Yeah. And, and what what kind of growth did you experience? The company grew by about 100 employees during that period of time. 100, 100 employees. Yeah, I personally probably hired about half of those people. Um, <laughs> That's so, impressive. Yeah, I mean, we went from having a dinky little closet. Did it handle that growth well? That did it not like break under the the expansion? No. That's amazing. It's still going. The company's still going. Equity, sweet. Hopefully, the like exit. The culture changes, right? And so this is something you have to learn really quickly when you get involved in like startup growth, is that you know your organization changes it takes on a new identity well these are the problems of i i the last episode was with a guy who's running um a boutique production company for sure you know and and we were talking about like how that managing managing your success is probably the hardest part once you get off the ground yeah absolutely and it's being true to yourself is the hardest part almost more so than anything That's else part of, i mean you lose your way yeah exactly and you get confused and the funny thing is that they set out to achieve um they set out to achieve changing education. It was this huge lofty goal. And they produced like 10 little courses off of their seed fund. Yeah. Built the online platform, went to market with it. And it was like wine tasting and uh, entrepreneurship and parenthood and neuroscience. And the one that like killed it and got like a quarter of a million dollars in course sales was a quilting class. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's amazing. And it, I mean, it's an underserved market online. It made total Apparently. sense. It's people who have got spending power. It's people who have had time. And it just made complete sense. And it, it became the company. So the company was run by, like, it was started by three or four dudes from eBay who wanted to change education. And it became like a quilting and crafting company, which is probably one of their biggest life tragedies. But it was a wild success. And it became this really important thing and ma a meaningful thing for a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And again, that, so I went from teenage girls to middle-aged women, you know, in <laughs> I aggregate. Get it now. Yeah. And, and it's, but it was cool. It was fascinating to just be exposed to that kind of community and that audience. But again, that's a perfect definition of like, you have to pivot when you know what's working in the market and you got to grow and you got to, you know, yeah. you've got, you have to be LPs open to, on your to, venture to capital fund. Yeah. Getting pushed in certain directions. Exactly. So then after about a year and a half, why did you, things were successful. I mean, it's, they're expanding. Why did you personally feel the need to leave? Um, there's a lot of things. I mean, there's things that are easy to talk about and there's things that are not about that transition, but like, let's just talk about the easy things. Yeah. The easy things. It was getting to a hundred people. It was just getting to this point where it was a big thing. It kind of took on its own identity. It was getting momentum. And the funny thing is that I consistently hire myself out of my own job. 
um, when you're growing, you're doing one person wearing like 14 hats and then you hire 14 people to wear those hats. And then suddenly you're like, okay, well, what's next? And for me, I fell in love with growing companies. I was about to say, it, it seems like once it's at a certain point, you're kind of, because at any point while well, you were doing this, and at this point, at the end of this, you're like three years out of college now, and you're getting more far, you're farther and farther removed from any of your grandiose thoughts about what filmmaking would be for you when you first started school. At any point, were you getting upset or distraught or like worried that like you were never going to do that aspect of filmmaking and that like you were like leaving that kind of behind it bother you at all or were you just excited at the things you were doing and it was like no i'm just evolving i fell love i fell out of love with the business of hollywood and i did that pretty much i had a prejudice going into college with it i wanted to bring down hollywood and everybody i think did and you know you go to school and you're naive about it some people love it and they're romanced by it but the commercial direction of the industry it's hard not to be frustrated yeah. at times and it's a hard game it's difficult there's a lot of things that are unnecessary still to this day i think it's incredibly outmoded and outdated in a lot of its uh, business practices and the way that they treat employees and onboard talent and wrangle people compensation is a mess there's so many problems with the industry that you know could take probably an hour and a half to like dissect in and of themselves I really wanted nothing to do with that game. And I also personally struggled having studied formally as a producer with finance fundraising. It was hard for me. It got to this place where it was really difficult for me to ask people for money that they might not ever see back. And it's still a challenge, but even then it's a little bit easier when you have a prototype and you have something to prove like software, you build a little app and like you have a market traction and things. It's easier to make that promise to somebody and ask right. for money. I guess you weren't feeling a creative deficit. Not really. I'm, yeah, again, it's... Because the creativity was also in the creativity needed and required to build these companies and things like that. So you were, get, you were like getting that ass. You were getting off in that way. Yeah, I've never... Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's absolutely fair to say. I learned pretty quickly that the creativity inherently wasn't my interest. Mm. That there's creativity in everything you do if you're awesome. Like, <laughs> so then where'd you go after the second one? So I actually got a phone call from our dear friend, Justin Hamilton. Ah, I was wondering when this was going to come up. At the, you know, the right time. It was the right time. I... I was tired at Craftsy. They had grown um, to, in full disclosure, had somewhat contentious relationship with the VP at the time that I was working with. And it's fine. And we all learn from that. Yeah, I think, you know, workplace relationships and how good, how good they are or how bad they are. Totally. They're all always learning experiences. And it, honestly, if I look back at the situation when I left Al Alloy Entertainment, I was an entitled little child. When I left the next company, I was a little well. Entitled. Let's talk about that for a second because I mean, you're you're super young and having success. How do you deal with like a big head, an ego? Well, I think early on I didn't deal with it very well at all, mm. and almost in a destructive way. Unfortunately, I still have good relationships with some of these people now. Like, but even at the time, I just I wanted more. I wasn't getting more, and I moved on. And at the time, no I patience, just quit. Yeah, kind of I, thing. I lost patience with it, and it's true. Like, I think. There is also a part of it where in an environment that becomes somewhat stagnant, you feel like you've learned 90% of everything that you're going to learn and the effort you'd have to put in to learn another. I mean, a part of that is true. Absolutely. It's just your... And I, I think I, I am better than most people at accepting when I hit the 90% and willing to cut my losses at the other 10 and move on. But yeah, it, it's basically the, it's equating to hitting a ceiling. You, yep, you, yep. You get frustrated. You Basically, there's no other room to wiggle out of. And for Alley Entertainment, it's I didn't see the branded content thing sustaining. 
they were platforming on YouTube, which is a model I didn't believe in. There was no stickiness there to building an audience. So there's nothing sustained. There's no subscription basis, nothing. So what they were working so hard to build wasn't sustaining. And I was even fighting that back then. And nobody was interested in data. I kept even, it was on YouTube and Google or YouTube's like hotspots back then were incredible. You could learn what jokes could land when and didn't land and all these other things. Nobody wanted to develop off of that information and that's fine. But I found it at the time very frustrating and very narrow-minded. Nobody was leveraging the platform to their success, mm -hmm. their advantage. Mm -hmm. And yeah, fundraising was getting hard and all those other things. And so I, I was just done with that. I, we hit all the ceilings we could. We were just frustrated as a business and we didn't see a future in it. And unfortunately, again, I was in... Well, that's interesting. I mean, because I, I think that this goes to a bigger discussion that a lot of people deal with when, like, when's the right time to move on? And for someone that has moved on from a lot of companies for not bad reasons, but just because, like, it has its it's run its course in your career or your need for what you were getting out of it. And I think that the biggest takeaway that I've gotten is that, you know, I think there that people do can hold on for that last 10% longer than they should, because somehow they feel like that 10% has more weighted value than the 90 that they've learned. But honestly, I, I you could argue against that pretty concretely, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of things you need to ask yourself. First one, have I been happy in the last six months? Second one, is this important to me? Like, is this a, a cause that I need to die for? Because mm. I'm suffering right now if I'm not happy. Like, is it worth it? Is it important? And mm. if you can't say yes to that question, then you ask yourself the third and what I think is equally as important as the other two. Is there anything more I can get out of this? And what I mean by that, is there any more that will help me grow as a human being? Is there anything more I can learn? And if you feel like you've really learned everything and you feel like this isn't important, this isn't a cause that you can die and they fall on the sword for, and you're just not happy. And those things have been true for a sustained period of time. And that part's important. Yeah. It has to be continuous. You you have no choice. You have to move on. And I know it's scary to have, you know, you, you might be throwing yourself on the streets. I've quit jobs without having other jobs. And that's terrifying. I made a you know, conscious choice right out of high school that I needed to make sure I always had six months of living in the bank. I had to save money because I needed to give myself the flexibility to live my life. And that's not necessarily a luxury everybody has, but if you can save that first and then save for travel and save for all these other things, like invest in your happiness. And to me, there's a little bit of security measure there that was super helpful and it gave me so much flexibility to make those kinds of decisions. Yeah. And I mean, I think that one of the first, I'm it, this is the perfect time that we start talking about when Justin emailed you and when we started doing the first project that where where you and I met, Peter Planet. My introduction to who you were as a person was seeing an email that you wrote to Justin listing pros and cons of joining our project. They were so, and I mean this in the best way, but emotionless. They were so factual for a decision that was so hard. And it was like, the, the level of exactitude was incredible. And I mean, that was, an, that was definitely a little um, window into your head. It's something that stayed with me because I, I try and like assess things in that way because I saw how beneficial you were in analyzing your own situation. So then you joined Peter Plan, and I guess in, I haven't spoken about this project on this podcast yet, so it just hasn't come up. How was that experience in, in your words for, for you from your perspective? Well, going back to the start of it, I kind of just went with the punches. Again, I hadn't been happy. Of which there were many. Yeah, exactly. I hadn't been happy at the job. Some things, these personnel got shifted around. I wasn't inspired by what I was doing. I wasn't growing anymore. And when Justin calls me and says, hey, you want to go like travel the world and hit all these continents in one fell swoop? You know, it sounded like a good idea. It sounded like it was worth exploring. But again, it was a risky project. Mm -hmm. The budget wasn't very high. The schedule was kind of aggressive. The amount of unknowns were high. 
the client wasn't somebody that we had a relationship with prior. The way the route by which we got the job in the first place wasn't very solid. It was kind of random. So it was a it was a risky job, and you you never know. Like I look back at that period in January before we left for the job, and even some of the personal choices I make, I won't go into detail. But like, I was like, ah, like. <laughs> I like kind of threw caution to the wind at that point because I'm like, I don't even know if I'm coming back from this job. Like who knows what can happen in some kind of scenario like this. Well, it's like, you know, we were like 24, 25 and there was an opportunity to travel the whole world. Absolutely. And, and like I, did, that, I didn't study that, abroad. So that was a huge thing for me. That blinded us in a, in a great way though. I mean, I'm glad that we went through it, but for those at home, I mean, it was basically a, a an Anthony Bourdain style show, except it was based out of the uh, Dubai and the hosts were two brothers that were from Dubai and we tried, but we traveled the world and every episode was a, um, you know, we met cultural icons, we met food icons, tech icons, and we just spoke about the things that they do. So that was cool. We, we had a lot of, we ran, maybe one day Justin and I will sit down and just talk about that that project at length uh that might be an interesting episode but your job on that i mean you saved our asses logistically uh, the position didn't really even exist before justin started talking to the client I mean, to my, to, if i recall it we there was no producer that wasn't a concept that was relevant well they the job. yeah they thought that they could handle it on their end and then we were like you know we don't f- i think at one point we threw an ultimatum that if if you couldn't come we weren't going to do it um, because we understood the value of having someone that sole purpose was getting us into and out of every country. And I mean, we went every continent, 12 countries. What do you think the biggest takeaways from that were for you? I mean, it was a, it was a really a, a big departure from the stuff that you had been doing prior. Did that coming out once we were done? Did you feel like it was a waste of time in any way? Or, or did you what, what did you or like what you gained from it was worth the the walk, the stepping back from like post producing and like what was a kind of a through line career trajectory that kind of got side railed? You know, I haven't really thought about it. And I, it's easy to brand it. We had Google as a client, like tech was still involved. And so this weird like True. line I walk between entertainment and the internet and have always walked for my entire career, it was there. It was inherent in the project. It was a web platform project. It had sponsors that had a big panache, you know, and I can break anything down to data, data and sell that. What we did with the budget was impressive. What we did with the schedule was impressive. And so there's these skills that I've always used in my life and have in every job you know, in lieu of not being focused on an industry, in lieu of not calling myself a career man of any title or profession, I'm really good at hiring. I'm really good at scheduling. I'm really good at budgeting. These are things that I take with me in everything that I do in my life. And I would consider that a monumental success in those regards. It, um, it was. For for the limitations <laughs> yes. we had were absurd. And I'm very proud of what we did. Yeah, I'm me too very fond of the brotherhood that we formed the crew did on that job you know in spite of it it's the hardest i've ever worked and probably will ever work in my entire life it was 18 hour days legitimately 18 hour days for 154 days straight yeah and i, I tell which is a hard this, thing i can't believe that we did it it was fucking nuts <laughs> <laughs> and we <laughs> When you're begging for long plane flights, I'll never forget landing and we landed in Tokyo and everybody was just cranky. We only got a two hour flight. We only got a two hour flight we because- flew from Seoul to Tokyo. I'd say we probably averaged 10 hour flights. Oh, higher. With some things even, being yeah. higher. Yeah. And, and, um, we begged for it. We, we begged wanted for it. Cause that was, was our, that was our only time to disconnect and sleep and sleep. And, sleep. and <laughs> there's this the great, there's this great photo of both you and Justin sitting next to each other with your face just planted in the, in the tray table, just out. The, the and most. we hadn't even, we hadn't even left the gate yet. Yeah. No, the, the parameters of that job, we wouldn't say yes to now, but they were, it was like beautifully insane for where we all were in our lives and careers and, no, I mean, it was wild. And what you and Justin accomplished creatively was beautiful. What 
you know, Tony and James were able to pull together and the editing was impressive with how much footage we were able to generate in such short bursts. Like the craft of that was incredible. And I'm proud of you guys for doing that. And, you know, I'm all, I can only take credit for like setting you up to do that. And that's my job. And it was, I think we did it and we didn't fail like anywhere. No. Our fit, the failures that happened on that project were not our crew's fault and like objectively speaking. And so that's even great. So the amount that was hurled at us and overcome is just something. Yeah. But I mean, like, uh, um, even hearing you discuss it, and I've thought this in the past, like every time I've heard you discuss discuss it, like you're you're constantly, it starts to make sense in terms of like what you actually find enjoyment of, because like the way that you are the first to, I don't know, like you you just don't want any credit. It's a it's a fascinating thing. I mean, because I, I, I try to understand. I've had some people on here, including last episode, that were people that are producers and that aren't just that, but they like love it. And I try and understand it because I, I don't come from that mindset. And I think a lot of it is like just really enjoying creating scenarios that allow for like a result that you don't are not necessarily leading, but you did lead the like creating the world in which it was birthed. It's interesting hearing into that part of your psyche. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I'm not interested. Most people don't understand what I do, so taking public credit for it's irrelevant. True, um, it's literally just a name, and that at that point, it's yeah, it's, no one, no, yeah, people outside the industry that aren't really sure what producers do, and people in the industry, if you're really good at it and you maintain relationships, will find you anyway. Yeah, um, that's been true. I get calls. I don't look for this, and it's awesome. But it's right. this is that part's that part's never been interesting for me. So what, what happened after Peter Planet? Like, where'd you go? So we came back, and I probably recovered for six months. Hibernated like a bear. And fortunately, again... What came out after? A lot of self-discovery. And again, some freelance jobs that, like, made that tolerable. Um, The last time... I'm in New York now. The last time I was in New York was that fall. It was October 2013 when I decided that it was time to start figuring out um, where I was going next. What city I wanted to be in. What environment I wanted to be in. Um, Because, like, how do you get from three years ago making that choice, basically, to now... Like have your your con- consulting or a part of fourteen different places, um, all pretty much remotely. Yeah. How'd you go from three years ago to this now? Well, I get, the last time I came out here, I spent a month out of Denver, outside of Denver. I spent nine days in New York. I spent nine days in LA. I spent nine days in San Francisco. The end of that culminated with one of our peers, Andrew Smith, who was also on the travel series. He was, a, he was our social media director. He was getting married. And so that whole month-long trip culminated with us going to that wedding. His bachelor party was in San Diego the week before. And during that week, I was like, I was twiddling my thumbs. I visited LA, saw some friends again, but I, was, I had time to kill. And I was like, Andrew, who's the most important who are the most important people I need to meet in Orange County? Because I might as well. I'm here, and I'm. this is a part of the trip. And I ended up, ended up getting connected with this agency in Orange County called Envoy. Um, and they were small. They were in this tiny little 3,500-square-foot office. It was two But twin- I can get that that's more attractive to you because you like building. 100%. They had two, it was run by two twin brothers and their old high school friend. So it was a, founder, it was a three-person founding team. They had just signed Vizio on retainer and at the time they had like weinstein they had a lot of entertainment clients they had just really interesting random small projects but it was it was a digital shop it was apps and websites they didn't really do any print um Mm -hmm. but they were also it was early enough that they were finding their identity so again it was like 12 employees at the time but it was very clear they're like we have to serve this visio client like we have to grow up really quickly and so that's what we talked about we talked about growth we talked about you know what i had done for craftsy we talked about what i'd done for Allo entertainment 
what things were established, the kind of eclectic nature of my skills. And we kept the dialogue going and it got to the point where I was like, this is, I mean, this is actually an interesting opportunity to grow another company. And I'd never worked for an agency before. It's a totally different paradigm, but it is one of like clients and billing out to clients and all of those other things. Like it was a fascinating, just environmental paradigm shift for me, but it, it was also still just growing a company. And so when I started, I finally agreed to work for them. I agreed reluctantly, very reluctantly to move to Orange County. Yeah, that's tough. Um, because if I hated LA because it was all sprawled and, you know. Um, I don't think Orange County is any better. It's, Orange County is infinitely worse. There and you it, it kind of brought it full circle back. I grew up in a master plan community outside of Denver, like South Denver metro area. My father's an urban planner and built my hometown, but it's effectively Orange County light. And to go back to Orange County and see what inspired this like mega trend of soul sucking suburbanism um which is beautiful for some people and building families and education and a lot of those other things but in a lot of other ways but for a young you know, yeah for a 20, spry bachelor 20 yeah exactly trying to like career dominate that's not exactly the um yeah environment who's not a like stark republican who's not uh, you know i don't i'm not a very like devout christian at all like that was just not a culture that i was a part of and i definitely yeah. didn't want a suburban house and be that isolated right i wanted to go out at night and stuff i was fortunate to have had good experiences in laguna beach and have some friends there and i was lucky enough to pull together a incredible year and a half of living in laguna beach you know and what happened what happened at, at, at a year and a half so same exact thing like this right. is you, hit, you, you did 90 percent, and you weren't interested in the yeah. last 10 yeah and it's an agency life so a lot of things became really like true for me like there it's and they were going through changes they wanted to figure out building a board they like wanted to hire a president and I, there's it's no secret that i was very public about not agreeing with the presidential choice they chose unfortunately they moved on from that and it's healthy and they've grown up with their business again it's all growing pains yeah. navigating these growing pains and things and so at the time and again agencies are hard i i have equity in all these other startups but i don't i didn't in an agency and you wouldn't it's not the culture right there's no it's a hard business mm -hmm. for everybody on both sides of the table and they know it and they're really working hard to build a really different kind of agency and at the time i didn't believe them but i'm seeing what's happening now and helping them with these things and it's incredible it's uh, really impressive what this is doing. And they've done incredible work and got deals and contracts and projects like nothing I've ever heard of in the business and continue to have these engagements that are so profoundly unique and powerful and have could have far-reaching effects that are so much higher than probably could even be achieved if you venture-funded your own little product. And so it's wildly impressive where you're, this is going. At a year and a half, you're, you're now just consulting with them. You're not working with them. Correct. So, so how did you... like? I, I want to know like this transition into not working specifically at one place and consulting for a lot of places and how you do it and how you deal with it and your thoughts on it. Yeah, so it goes back to two things. One, I don't know if it's fear of missing out, but it's this love for multiple different projects at multiple different times. Like, I, like I think having, it serves the way your brain works pretty well. Yeah, I like having my hands in a bunch of different pies. And like I said, I have to deal with that on a constant basis, but it is a part of my identity. The other side of it was looking back at the two other companies that I ran away from that I just outright quit. Right. And looking back at that now, this is, this would be now the third startup environment that I've had an intimate relationship with and seen the exact same growing pains. And at this point, I've achieved some level of wisdom. If you see the same thing happen three times, it becomes a truth and a reality, not a, a factor of the environment. Right. In those two former environments, I pointed fingers and blamed people or I blame circumstances or I blame decisions that were made now. But when it gets to three people or three companies and three times seeing the same things happen all the time, 
it's become a wisdom and a reality. These are growing pains. These are natural. And when you kind of emotionally are able to separate yourself from that, see it and understand it, you can actually, you reach this profound place where you can really help people navigate those things. Yeah. Um, and I had, and at the time I had job offers, I had people wanted to form partnerships. There was just other startups in my life and there always will be, there's always going to be people I'm talking to who want to work with you or want to help and things like that. And it's important to keep those relationships alive and keep those doors open. Sure. But at the same time, I was also afraid of working full time for them for the same reasons in the particular role that I was in. It was again, an operational. It was, well, it also seems like at a certain point, you know, obviously right out of school, no, no one knows who you are. You don't know who you are. So, but at this point now, you have a track record and a background that now that the calls are coming, you don't need to commit to one thing because you don't have any any other option. If you have all these options, like, well, I can make all these options happen to a degree yeah. instead of like choosing one. Is that kind of how? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw that as an opportunity and I consider it very fortunate that those opportunities were there, but it was a factor of you know, long-term relationship building. Yeah, no, it's incredible. And I, I also had a little, a second point of wisdom that when you're working full time for somebody, it's, you're, you're put in a position, a very terrible position where you can't put that at stake. You can't be honest in an environment where you could, you know, all your eggs are in one basket and mm. you tip that basket over, right? Mm. It's too risky. Even if you have six months saving in the bank and you're protected and things like that, what if you want to stay and you really do care about where you're working, but you have this very strong opinion about how things need to change or grow or run, how do you... So the diversity of your like consultants, consultantship, that's not a word. Can we make it one? Consultancy. Consultants, consultancies. The the diversity of it is giving you a strength to talk to speak your mind in any one particular one, which well, makes you well, a better it's part of it. I can be a counselor for that pers- that that company. You would say. Yeah, my role shifts for being a servant of a company. Hmm, yeah. To a counselor. Right. I can like diagnose you as a CEO and you're paying me to do this and you understand that this is a relationship. I can be honest with you. You you cannot be afraid to open your books to me against the stupid cultural stigma against like keeping salaries secret from each other and all those other things. And we can talk honestly about the numbers. We can talk honestly about the schedules and the realities and the product. We can talk honestly about what your your team really thinks of you versus what you really think of yourself or versus what you think of your team. I can make harder recommendations if I'm free to know, hey, you're not the only other egg, in the, you're the only, you're not the only egg in the basket. Like I've got three other companies, clients, whatever. I've got other contracts, and I'm not afraid to tell you what you need to hear. Yeah, it's almost at this point you need to keep this cons- like the 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 number consistent because that's where your ability for any one of them kind of comes from in a way. Yeah, it's fueled by it. And I'll be honest right now, I only have the one client. I have the Envoy client. I've retained the Envoy client. They were very gracious to keep me on and continue to do so. It's a unique engagement because it's transitioned more from working on the agency and growing the agency to a role specifically focused on, because this is where they needed me. My title at this company is Special Ops, or it was. (laughs) It was just kind of a joke. That's amazing. I would literally just parachute in and do whatever I needed to do to get the job done. Oh, you need to hire an Android developer? Okay, I'm going to go hire an Android developer. Oh, you need to like get a new office space? Okay, I'll go do that. Oh, we need to like solve this problem for this client? Okay, sure. I know Photoshop. I can figure this out. That's me to a nutshell. Again, it's producing. It all goes back to like exhibiting the same skills of doing anything it needs to do to get everything done and being a jack of all trades is a service and that you're you're the swiss army knife all purpose whatever and you're available and loyal and around to be able to solve any problems 
And in this particular client relationship, they took on an incredibly challenging project for Visio. It's called SmartCast, and I'm not going to go into it too deep, but basically they were building applications, mobile applications to control your television. They're trying to shift the access of intelligence from the television to your smartphone in your, in your living room to give you all the power over your TV, all your settings, your content acquisitions, all of your streaming catalogs and libraries are trying to shift the access to your phone. And that was a very trying complicated... Trying to make the TV a monitor of your phone? Exactly. Hmm. And which is kind of where computing is going anyway. Um, your smartphones are getting so powerful that you know a monitor is a monitor and that's all it's ever going to be. Optics are incredibly important. Vizio has really amazing displays and it's fun to like be a part of their or work with our hardware team and you know get down and nerdy with them about all of these things that I cared about when I was in the like, color grading sessions at Alloy Entertainment and like nerding yeah. out about it then. So it's a full circle thing for me. But yeah, they had this really complicated user experience challenge. Like, how do you put the remote control in your phone? How do you combine all of these streaming sources, Netflix, Hulu, all of these other things, and put them in one place? And like, how is that a useful experience and things? It was an incredible challenge. My background in entertainment was attractive to them. Again, it's like entertainment people are like, oh, you understand the internet, come work with us. Or internet people are like, oh, you understand the entertainment, come work with us. This is my career. It's all it's ever been. And it's hilarious. And it's kind of become a curse in some cases. And this might have been a case where it became a curse. But it's well, like, why? well, it's just funny because it's become my engagement with them. But I'm product gotcha. managing software right now for them, yeah. which entails so so for film people, that basically entails somewhat of a higher degree of product and project management. I care about the vision and the what and why of what it's trying to achieve, and I work with designers to help fulfill that vision. And at the same time, I'm working on execution: the hows, the wins, the schedules, running. Yeah, it kind of it kind of just seems like it's a just to bring it back to like the main convo that it's a manifestation. Just seems like everything just has kind of been expounding upon itself since school. Yeah. In that way, and I feel like, because obviously I would imagine that the majority of the audience of this podcast are filmmakers, and I think just from kind of taking a gander at social media and the conversations that the, that the episodes kind of give is that there are a lot of kids listening or like students or recently students, and I mean, you're not the director that they want to, that they're interested in that aspect or a cinematographer, like what, as kind of a last bit, from where you're sitting, like what kind of advice would there be for either the film student that's unsure, or even if there is like, you know, people that are out of school and they are kind of sure, like, how do you, you're just successful. I think that you kind of know how to make things work. And where does that come from outside of the details of your own specific career? Conscientiousness is the big thing. I worked really hard to listen to my peers talking about me. I liked that feedback became important and it became a dimension of really understanding who I was and what was important to me. It was helpful. It validated what I was what I was happy doing with what I was good at doing. And I knew I was good at doing because I got the feedback from other people. So really listening to your peers and maintaining those relationships. And over time, it's really important. Some of the people I came to see here in New York, I don't see but every three or four years. And I probably don't have a relevant career reason to do it. I probably don't have a relevant like even social reason to do it for we're not hanging out with any of the same people. It doesn't matter. But at the same time, staying in touch with people, even from high school, elementary school, you would never know who is going to come back into your life with a vengeance, maybe a collaborating partner, maybe somebody you want to spend the rest of your life with. But also those people, those conversations remind you of who you were. We have this beautiful human That's fascinating. evolution of forgetting things. And it's tragic when you forget yourself. 
and you're capable of doing that, especially in a world where you're jumping from project to project to project to project, your identity becomes these projects and you move forward and who you were 10 years ago and what you wanted to achieve 10 years ago, you forget about it. And it might still be important to you. It might still be in there and be relevant or inform who you are now or reinform who you are now. And if you don't stay in touch with people in your life, like that's gone, it's gone. And being iterative and moving forward is still a really important part of the process, but getting that feedback and shaping who you are and being aware of who you are, like it doesn't scare me that I'm not a filmmaker anymore. And so you asked for advice. The first thing I would advise is be renaissance. Like do not be obligated to a career and a title. Yes, it will help you brand yourself. Yes, you need to be kind of a one sentence figment in other people's minds to get jobs. They need to know, they need to think in your head, hey, you're a director, I get it. They need to understand that's the branding panache, but that doesn't mean you don't have to have four different websites and have four different brands and live four different lives and be a renaissance person. And I think it's critical to be really informed on your work to hybridize and be exposed to different industries and different interests and things like that. So you can inform your work and be different and be unique as a postmodern child. We've grown up in a world where it's all about borrowing from other people and it's very difficult. They don't teach you to steal from within yourself or from your peers. They don't teach you to like really, really get into other industries, other worlds and pull out of it and inform your work that way. You're making movies of other movies. You're not making movies of truth and that's hard to do. And it's really hard to teach. I don't really necessarily have a solution for that either but it's really critical that you keep a conscious just a a regular consistent awareness of who you are where you fit in what your interests are outside of what you're doing for your quote-unquote career index it keep track of it serve it and let it serve your work and that's a lot but to sum that up don't be afraid to explore don't be afraid to mix it up and don't be too obligated or tight-lined to your career because it will suffocate you but It's not true for everybody. Some people need to be masters. And if you inherently love cinematography, you inherently love editing, and there's nothing you could ever imagine yourself ever doing, do not waver. Put in those 10,000 hours. I'm jealous of those people. You are incredible and do what you do. Like if you know inherently deep down what you want, even if you're compromised by it or struggle with it, be aware. Are you struggling with it? Like the inherent skills you're using? Or are you struggling with the context by which you were asked to use those skills? Mm. You have to separate those things. Because you could be sitting there like, you know, is it a delusion of grandeur? Or am I like actually good at this? And yeah, if you like telling stories by cutting pictures together, but you get stuck doing music videos or something like that because that's what your client basis is. Don't if you hate the work or do you hate the skill? Editing. Yeah, yeah. Or do you and you have to separate those things and you yeah. have to be active and proactive about working your way out of what you don't like. And so it goes back to what you're saying with Peter Planet. I've gotten really good at writing things down, of objectifying emotional things. You have to get it out of yourself. If it doesn't get out of yourself, you're not going to make an informed decision. You have to see it in front of yourself. And pros and cons list is such a hokey little simple thing. But if one column's longer than the other, then suddenly you have a bar graph. Literally, you have a bar graph like representing. And if you go in and sort it or like whatever you're going to do, you're going to score it and like come up with identities. You, You basically, whatever it takes to instill confidence in yourself to make the decision you know you need to make, those are incredibly helpful tools and you have to use them. I mean, I think it's the it's the the consciousness stuff is the the really important thing is to not make sure that you know you're not just getting blown by the wind, and that you're 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 sort of in trying to steer it as best you can. Obviously, things come up they're out of your control, but just trying to be aware of who you are as yeah. a person is is the big thing. And the easiest mechanical thing to do is to really listen 
to people. Yeah. If you're too stuck in your head about who you are, you're not really listening. And it's feedback's important. Feedback is the most critical thing in an organization. Feedback's the most critical thing on a team in a creative environment. Honestly, there's several reasons why feedback is also important. If people, it gives people the opportunity to feel invested in what they're working on. So if you're leading and directing and producing or whatever you're doing, but you have people who are technically in the hierarchical aspects of filmmaking, like reporting to you or even in a business, if you open up the forum for them to say what they really think, even if you don't care and even if you're not going to use that information, but if you just listen to people and give people a, a platform to speak, they will feel so much more engaged, engaged in their work and, yeah. and more than giving a pay raise, more than doing anything else that I, in my experience, you see that spark of life go into their work. They feel involved. They feel invested. And it goes back to those three questions of like, are you happy? Is this important? And are you learning things? If you want to be a great director, the, the, the path to becoming a great director is to surround yourself with people who believe that you're a director. And the only way that they're going to give you that is if you give them something in return. And what, I, what I've found in my experience is the best directors give their peers a sense of purpose, a sense of involvement, a sense of control, or at least a feeling of control over their craft, and a sense of just general respect. Like, you're really good at your job. This is why you're here. I need you here. I don't, it's not, you're not just a second set of hands. You're contributory, and that's really important, and I value you being here. And saying even something small like that once a day to whoever changes their world, changes their life, and then suddenly you become the top of the totem pole because people have respected you and put you in that position. Yeah. I feel like um, I can pretty much at this point say a single word and we'll be off to the races. Um, Maybe you should start blogging again or write a book or I don't know. You got thoughts. But it's been really interesting. You're, You're an anomaly to me. And, you know, stay that way. I will. And thank you for uh, being my fine host in New York and having me on. Cheers, bud. Cheers. Cheers.